This podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You are now listening to British Brothers, the True Cry Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast focusing exclusively on British murder cases and serial killers. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this is the 6th episode of season 11. Before we get into it, as always, let's break the ice. The show's first opening icebreaker segment is this. True facts that sound like bullshit. Did you know... Major General Sir Nils Olav III, a King Penguin living at Edinburgh Zoo, is the mascot and colonel-in-chief of the Norwegian King's Guard. I certainly didn't. Now it's time for the show's final opening icebreaker segment. Random quote of the day. You only live once. If you don't enjoy it, it's your fault. Nobody else's. That was said by Duncan Bannatyne. Listener Annie requested this case via email. We're in the West Dunbartonshire town of Clyde Bank this week, located in West Central Scotland. For reference, the town is around 7 miles northwest of Glasgow, and for my international listeners, 390 miles north and slightly west of London, England. Here are five quickfire facts about Clyde Bank. Number one. Clyde Bank is the historic heartland of the Scottish shipbuilding industry and it's located on the banks of the River Clyde to the west of Glasgow. It grew from a small village to one of the world's major shipbuilding centres in the 19th century. Number two, the town was originally known as Barnes or Clyde, but changed its name in 1882 after James and George Thompson relocated their shipyard to the village and began building tenement housing for the workers. Number three, the Clyde Bank Blitz was one of the most devastating attacks in Scotland during the Second World War. Occurring between March 13th and 15th, 1941, the Blitz saw hundreds of people lose their lives in the air raids, with many families being evacuated to neighbouring towns after their homes were destroyed. Number four, the town encompasses part of the Antonine Wall, which was built on the orders of the Roman Emperor Antoninus Pius around 142 AD. And number five, completed in 1907, the Titan Crane was the first of the four surviving cantilever cranes on the River Clyde. Its 150 ton capacity, later increased to support the war effort, was capable of lifting the heaviest boilers and gun mountings into newly built ships. The approximate population of Clyde Bank, according to the 2011 census, is 28,799. This story is one of those that seems to have fallen under the radar, especially outside of Scotland. It's from 1995, granted, but I was flabbergasted at how little information there was regarding what is, in reality, an absolutely brutal murder story. I want to ask, before we get properly going, what you're like when it comes to lending people money. Whether it be a sibling, some other family member, or a close friend, what does that interaction look like if you're the one being asked to lend? Personally, I'm a bit of a tight git, I don't tend to lend people money, and the caveat of that is that no bugger asks me to borrow money. Do you agree to illegally charge interest if you lend money a la the mafia or one of the lads I work with? 
What's your lending limit and when do you expect it to be repaid? What happens if it seems like the person you lent the money to has taken the route of simply never mentioning it in the hopes of you forgetting? Do you write off the loss or do you get vocal about it being repaid? What about getting physical? I'm assuming most of you wouldn't resort to violence in that scenario, but the reason I bring this up is because this week's case is like so many I cover that involve money owed as a motive. If you're part of my Patreon community, you'll recall that in my last bonus episode, I covered another case of money being owed, the approximate value of which was ridiculously minimal. The exact amount owed isn't known in this particular case, nor is the precise nature of how the debt came about, but one source did mention it was about a bank gyro, so perhaps it was more than an insignificant figure. Regardless, it doesn't justify what happened to the debtor. The most logical place for me to begin is by introducing Kenneth Syme, a 48-year-old man living alone at 15-stroke 3 Fuller's Gate in Fairfle, an area of Clyde Bank. Having previously shared the property with his mum, Kenneth had been on his own for two or three years after she passed away in around 1992 or 1993. This story took place in 1995. Kenneth was never one for having a relationship with people, not in a romantic way at least. His neighbours reported that he had never been seen with anyone they suspected as being his partner. Instead, he just enjoyed the company of his beloved mum and was now doing his best to make it through life on his own. Now, From a research perspective, it's always rough reading newspaper articles from almost three decades ago because the language used isn't the best at times, but the common consensus regarding Kenneth was that he was a simple man. The way it was worded implied that he was perceived to have learning disabilities by those who knew him, however I can't substantiate that claim. Regardless of what others thought of him, Kenneth was one of the most harmless people you could ever meet. He went out of his way to make friends wherever he could, and many people were honoured to have him in their life. Well known in the local community, the only thing that meant more to Kenneth than his friends and family was his beloved Rangers football club. The passionate Jers fan would often discuss the team's news with friends down at his local boozer, the Dublet, just off Faithley Road, which was located a two-minute walk away from his house. The pub no longer exists by the looks of it. It's since been turned into a new-build residential property. If you look on Google Maps, though, you can tell where like the beer garden would have been, etc. That house defo used to be a pub. One of the other family members Kenneth saw on a fairly regular basis was his cousin Lorna McBride. Every two weeks he'd pay her a visit to catch up and get the latest gossip, with Lorna describing her cousin as an utterly wonderful person. He clearly had a huge heart and gave everyone the time of day, even if he didn't always get the same courtesy back. In the block of flats where Kenneth lived, each resident was given a chore regarding the maintenance of the building. It may be that you had a certain time slot on the cleaning rotor or had to ensure any missed mail was handed to the correct resident. In Kenneth's case, cleaning wasn't his thing, so he was responsible for taking the bins out. The communal area where people disposed of their rubbish was in the building's cellar, so Kenneth would wheel them all out on bin collection days, ideally the evening before, so they were ready to be emptied. The person Kenneth supposedly owed some money to was, confusingly, another man called Kenneth, but his surname was Maguire, which is how I'll refer to him for the remainder of this episode. 
35-year-old Maguire lived about three or four minutes away from Kenneth at 6G Watchwheel Crescent, sharing the rented top-floor tenement, or flat, with his 28-year-old mate, Michael Fay. The location of the pair's flat within the building is important, as its height plays a key role in this story, so I just want to clarify something quickly before I proceed any further. Every single source I used to research this episode, with the exception of one, referred to Maguire and Fay's tenement as being on the building's fourth floor. However, having looked at Google Maps, as I always do whenever it's possible to do so, I would argue that they were located on the third floor. I think in the US they might refer to the floor at street level through which they enter the building by the main doors as the first floor. In the UK we refer to that as the ground floor, hence the floor above that would be the first floor and not the second floor. Didn't realise how many times I'd written floor in that little passage. I don't want to get needlessly concerned with semantics, but just picture the fourth window up from the ground, that's where Maguire and Faye's tenement was. A common estimate found online suggests the third floor is about 30 feet high, 9 metres or so. Like Kenneth, Maguire was also a die-hard Jers fan, so the two men at least had that in common. Maguire took his love for the club to the next level, as demonstrated by his Ibrox-themed bedspread and Rangers-related paraphernalia on display throughout his bedroom. Ibrox is the name of the team's stadium, by the way. Not too much is known about Maguire's past other than he is said to have had a minor criminal record, but it made me wonder how accurate that was when I stumbled across a newspaper report from December 1979 whilst conducting my research. It mentioned an 18-year-old lad called Kenneth Maguire who was sentenced to life imprisonment for murder after stabbing 41-year-old James Bell in a robbery gone wrong. The sentencing took place at Glasgow High Court, the same court I'll mention again later in this episode, and the ages of that Kenneth Maguire and the one we are focusing on matches, sort of, but I'm not 100% convinced it's the same person. It's a hell of a coincidence if not though, right? but we will gloss over it for now, as its accuracy is debatable. We arrive now on December 31st, 1994, and the Hogmanay celebrations. What is Hogmanay? Allow me to explain for those non-Scots listening. For any Scots who are listening, please feel free to correct anything I get wrong here. Hogmanay is a Scots term, Scottish term, that refers to the last day of the old year, aka New Year's Eve. I read that there is no definitive answer as to the origin of the word Hogmanay, but it's thought to be of Norman-French descent. I imagine there are plenty of old myths and legends as to how the name came to be, and I'd love to hear some from my listeners beyond the wall. You know how everyone holds hands in that weird, cross-armed way and sings Old Lang Syne when the clock strikes midnight? That first became a tradition in bonny old Scotland. Robert or Rabbi Burns is credited as that song's author. To celebrate the beginning of the new year, Maguire and Fay held a party at their tenement. Kenneth Syme was on the guest list, even though he was meant to be in debt to Maguire already by that point. Maybe the invite was extended because Maguire wanted to confront him, or perhaps he felt it right to invite a fellow light blue to join in with the Hogmanay celebrations. You won't be surprised to hear that it was more likely the former of those two reasons. Kenneth planned to head to the party with another of his friends, 33-year-old Douglas Gordon, a 
as he probably felt he needed a bit of moral support and perhaps protection. Nobody likes arriving at a party alone anyway, do they? So on the two men went, and before long they'd arrived at the party, which was by that time in full swing. Douglas cautiously entered the flat with Kenneth and kept his guard fully up, as he knew there was a rumoured beef between the two men over a debt involving a bank gyro check. The first few hours of the party went down a storm, nothing eventful happened, and the group of friends saw in the new year as only Scots know how. Many smiles were exchanged, songs were sung, and of course, beers were drunk. The positive atmosphere in flat 6G suddenly changed though shortly before half one in the morning on January 1st. The story will continue after these quick messages. And now, back to the story. The best way to tell you what happened is through the eyes of Raymond Henfrey, a friend of Maguire's who was in attendance that evening. The mid to late 20s barman was initially taken in as a key suspect regarding the events I'm about to discuss. However, when it came to trial, he turned against Maguire and Fay, becoming a key witness for the prosecution. It was Henfrey who walked into Maguire's bedroom less than two hours into the beginning of 1995 and saw a sight one could only describe as coming straight out of a gangster movie. The colour instantly drained from his face as his eyes adjusted to the dark room and settled on the shadowy figures next to Maguire's bedroom window. Within seconds, he realised what was happening. Maguire and Fate were in the middle of a struggle with Kenneth, the latter of which was hanging halfway out the window. Being dangled head first, Kenneth was clinging onto his attackers as tightly as he could to prevent himself from dropping. Rushing to Kenneth's aid, Henfrey did his utmost to appease his two angry assailants and attempted to pull him to safety by grabbing hold of his legs. Outnumbered, much like Kenneth was, Henfrey was shoved back by Maguire, the person who appeared to be in charge, and the men's grip on Kenneth was relinquished. With nothing but concrete to cushion Kenneth's fall, Henfrey feared for the worst. He peered out of the open window and saw the motionless body of Kenneth lying on the ground below. Surely he had not survived the fall. How could anyone have? Henfrey would soon find out how wrong he was. He said of that initial incident, The man was hanging out head first and trying to hold on to the sides and I ran forward and tried to pull him back by his legs. You might think at this point that Henfrey might have gone straight outside to check on Kenneth, but that doesn't appear to have happened. The reason for that seems to be a simple one. Every single one of the partygoers, including Hemfrey, was petrified of Maguire. Known for his violent antics and unpredictable mood swings, Maguire was feared throughout the estate and was to be dealt with with caution at all times. Throwing poor Kenneth out of the window wasn't the only act of violence he committed that evening. A 39-year-old man called John Slevin was beaten by Maguire so brutally that he fell unconscious. Maguire was witnessed kicking and punching John with such ferocity that he would require surgery to heal his wounds and would go on to be left permanently disfigured. To be left with a lasting physical reminder of what happened to you on what was supposed to be an evening of celebration must have absolutely destroyed John. I dread to think what the mental impacts of such a savage assault were. What had John done to justify in Maguire's head a beating of such magnitude? He had apparently called another of the party-goers an orange bastard. 
I'll openly admit I had to look up what that term meant, and I apologise to anyone who is offended by it, but for those not in the know, it's a derogatory term used to refer to Protestants. For some context, Rangers FC supporters are traditionally Protestant, while Celtic FC fans support the Catholic Church. Celtic, another Glasgow-based football club, and Rangers are arch-rivals, with the very foundations of the two clubs being built on the religious division between Catholicism and Protestantism. I wouldn't advise using such a pejorative term, especially in the presence of a Jers fan, however the beating received on the back of the incident simply cannot be justified. Precisely how much time passed I can't say, but eventually Henfrey, who was accompanied by Faye, decided to head outside to check on Kenneth. To their complete shock, he was still breathing, and he was given a quick once-over by Henfrey, a man with a respectable degree of first-aid knowledge. Henfrey gained such knowledge from his time spent with the British Territorial Army, now the Army Reserve. Miraculously, Kenneth displayed no signs of having broken any bones and did not appear to be bleeding, not externally anyway. How he'd survive that drop landing on his back from such a height is beyond me. Henfrey and Faye carefully lifted Kenneth off the cold winter ground and took their time escorting him back into the building, eventually settling him down on Maguire's bed. You heard that right, the two men took Kenneth back to the exact room from which he was thrown a short time earlier and he was placed on top of Maguire's bedspread which was, as a reminder, in the colours of Kenneth's beloved jers. The logic behind taking Kenneth back to the bedroom was clarified by Henfrey when he said, My idea was to get him to bed to keep him warm. He was still breathing. I must clarify that the emergency services were not called at this point or at any other point throughout the night. The men clearly kept their fingers and toes crossed that Kenneth would make a full recovery without the involvement of medical staff or the people in blue. Their hopes dissipated as soon as Maguire re-entered his bedroom and exclaimed, What the fuck is that bastard doing back here? Frozen with fear, the two men watched in silence as Maguire stormed towards Kenneth, lifted him off the bed by the scruff of his neck with one hand and reopened the window with the other. He then proceeded to throw Kenneth out of it for the second time. The 48-year-old would not survive that second fall. I can't confirm what his official cause of death was, but I know he suffered severe internal injuries and had multiple fractures throughout his body. What happened next shocked me even more than when I read about how Kenneth was killed. After initially re-entering the living room as if nothing had happened, he likely didn't want to raise suspicion, Maguire headed outside with Henfrey. Again, Henfrey gave Kenneth a once-over until it dawned on him that he no longer appeared to be alive. Thinking quickly, Maguire procured one of his neighbour's wheelie bins and placed Kenneth's body inside it. Kenneth was later examined by a pathologist and it was revealed that some of the medical evidence showed he might still have been alive when his body was forced into the bin. That's devastating. Henfrey's role in the gruesome deed was moving the bin up a few stairs, therefore assisting Maguire. He went on to plead guilty to the offence of intending to conceal a crime and defeat justice. Maguire ended up wheeling the bin about 350 yards away from his tenement to a set of lock-up garages at the back of some houses on nearby Faithley Road where he abandoned it. 
He then returned to the party, which was now in the dying out phase as early morning approached, and once more went about his business as though nothing out of the ordinary had happened. Fast forward to lunchtime, and the discovery of Kenneth's body in the bin was unfortunately made by a nine-year-old boy, who must have been absolutely traumatised. Then again, it's not clear as to whether he realised that what he'd found was real. The resident of 178 Faithley Road, one of the properties that directly backs onto the lock-up garages, was 38-year-old Ronald Keane. The young boy had bumped into Ronald after no doubt looking for the next adult he saw to tell about his find. The boy said the bin belonged to his family and he'd been sent out to find it as it had gone missing from the building at Watchmill Crescent. As Ronald approached the bin, he noticed two women standing beside it. They had since peered into the bin and told Ronald there was a dummy inside, something they attributed to someone playing a drunken New Year's practical joke. On closer inspection, Ronald realised the body inside the bin was very much real, and the police were swiftly informed. The first officer to arrive at the scene was PC Graham Cordner, quickly followed by some of his colleagues and a pathologist. The decision was made to remove Kenneth's body from the scene whilst it was still in the bin, with the thought process being that his body would be better removed during the course of a post-mortem away from the prying eyes of the public. Within three days, Maguire, Fay and Henfrey were all called to appear at Dunbar and Sheriff Court. However, as I said earlier, Henfrey would turn against the former two men by acting as a key witness for the prosecution after the Crown accepted his not guilty plea regarding Kenneth's murder. Maguire and Fay's murder charges stuck for the time being, with the former also having an assault charge against his name regarding John Slevin. It would later come to light that Maguire had also threatened to throw another 39-year-old man called Ian Reid from the very window he threw Kenneth out of back on December 15, 1994. He denied that charge as he did each of the others. With Henfrey now a witness, his sentencing for attempting to defeat the ends of justice was set to take place once the murder trial had finished. Taking place at Glasgow High Court in April 1995, the trial was overseen by Judge Lord Osborne and saw Maguire launch a special defence of incrimination. It came after Fay's not guilty plea regarding murder was accepted halfway through the trial. Like Henfrey, Fay was to be sentenced at the end of the trial after pleading guilty to having thrown Kenneth out of the window the first time. In a nutshell, he pleaded guilty to attempted murder. Regarding Maguire's special defence of incrimination, that occurs when the accused party attempts to shift the blame from themselves by raising an inference that someone else committed the crime they are accused of. Now it's not as simple as taking the shaggy route and saying it wasn't me. You have to say it wasn't me, it was insert name here. In this case it was Faye and Henfrey, so said Maguire. As the trial concluded at the end of April, the jury retired and returned with a unanimous verdict of guilty regarding both Maguire's murder and assault charges. He was handed a mandatory life sentence with a minimum term of 15 years, which will have come to an end in 2010. I have no further information regarding what happened to Maguire after his minimum term ended, but I assume, if he's still alive, he'll be in his mid-60s if he is, he's now a free man. Judge Lord Osborne said in his closing statement, Decent people will find it quite appalling that after the injured victim was carried back up after being first thrown out, you ejected him once again. 
To my mind, that demonstrates a sheer wickedness and a complete lack of human feeling. I regard it as breathtakingly savage behaviour. Once Maguire was led away from the dock and taken into custody, Michael Fay entered it. He was handed a nine-year jail sentence for his role in the events on January 1st. The Crown did not move for sentence on Henfrey, likely owing to his invaluable contribution as a prosecution witness. And that was the story of the murder of Kenneth Syme. Thanks again, Annie, for suggesting that case. I'd love to hear everyone's thoughts on it. I've got four new reviews to read this week. Ashley Norris from Stockport left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com. It reads, Your podcast is the best. I listen to a wide variety of pods, but your delivery, sometimes wrong pronunciation of Welsh towns, makes me laugh, and in-depth detail of the victims and the murders, that makes it the great pod it is. Former interview guest Kim Booth left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com. It reads, As one of the investigating officers previously engaged in the Gillian Atkins murder investigation, I can say that the podcast is accurate and very well researched, as usual. Connor Halls left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com, which reads, First saw this on TikTok, the podcast with Vanessa Frake, so decided to listen to the podcast on Spotify and do not regret my decision. I just love the way you're so calm when you're talking about the most disturbing things, been listening on the way to work and home in the car and can't get enough. Finally, Stephen Smith left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com. It reads, I love this podcast. I found it by accident and now I'm hooked. Great content told with empathy and even humour. I listen while walking my dog. Thank you, Stuart, for all the hard work you put in to provide this excellent podcast. Thank you, Ashley, Kim, Connor and Stephen for leaving those reviews. If you'd like to leave a review of the show and have it read on a future episode, you can do so on iTunes, Facebook, Podchaser or BritishMurders.com. You can also leave star ratings on Spotify. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or donate on a one-off basis, you can do that at patreon.com slash britishmurders or buymeacoffee.com slash britishmurders. Thank you, June H, for buying me three beers. The message left was, thanks, Stu, love your podcast, keep up the good work. Thank you, hello, and welcome to my newest Patreon member, Whitney. And please remember to continue emailing your case suggestions to britishmurderspodcast at gmail.com or message me via social media. You'll not only get the episode covered, but you'll get a cheeky shout-out too. And that's it for another episode. I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. Cheerio. Cheerio.